Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. The one thing that I've always known and even felt, even though I wasn't with her, is that I know my mommy loved me. That's like, I always knew that. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm a CASA volunteer, a court-appointed special advocate for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know it's a mouthful. In the same way a CASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze, by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. My guest today is the lovely Jarana Yates. Jarana is from a family of five, but her mom at the age of 26 with five little kids was just not equipped to take care of them. So they ended up in an orphanage and then split up into foster homes and back at the orphanage and other foster homes and then back with the mom and then not. It was a rough and rocky road for Jarana and she's willing to tell us about it. Hi, so I'm here with Jarana Yates. Hi, Jarana. Thank you for being on my podcast. Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for having me. So especially now in the time of COVID, uh, we haven't seen each other for a really, really long time. I know you from Peace for Kids. We worked together maybe a few Saturdays or maybe a year of Saturdays. I don't even know anymore. It's a blur, right? <laughs> yeah. But that's been since last March. So it's nice to be able to talk with you again. I appreciate that you are at Peace for Kids. I think it's a really important organization. I'd like to get the plug in wherever I can. So Tell me a little bit about who you are. What's your background? How are you raised? Where are you from? Well, I am from Kentucky. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, originally born in Lafayette, Indiana. Mm. And I am one of five children. I am the middle child. I'm one of 10. Wow. That's right. So my dad wow. would say, to, said, that's a good start, but really. <laughs> <laughs> but five, that's a, that's a big family. Yeah. So I had a little unconventional background where from an early age, around about six years old, I was in an orphanage and eventually was placed up for adoption and lived in foster care for many years. And can you tell me a little bit about that, that orphanage? Yeah, yeah. It was a Catholic orphanage and it was run by nuns. It wasn't your typical orphanage where all of the kids there no longer had family. It was more of like a, a home where kids lived there during the week and then went home on the weekends. And I think it's because a lot of the parents just needed the help. When I went there, I went with me, my oldest sister, and my younger sister, my younger brother, my little brother, we all went together when, we, when I first went, and we were split up into different departments. I was in what is known as the little girls department. My sister, my oldest sister was in what is called the big girls department, and my younger sister and my little brother were in the nursery area. 
Well, I'm sure it wasn't like Bloomingdale's or something, right? So it's interesting to have those terms. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, I guess it was just the best way for them to segment which nun would care for them. Mm-hmm. And how, how did you feel when you first showed up there? What was the place like? Did you know what was going on? I didn't completely understand what was going on and why we were going there. I will say it helped a lot that my oldest sister was there. It's like this big, huge mansion that's tons of acreage, grounds, and I, I had no idea what was going on. I, um, we were the only black kids in the place. Um, so everybody else was white? Every single person was white, from the office staff to the nuns to the priests to everyone, everyone was white. Right, and why were you sent there? You couldn't stay with your mom? No, my, my mom, for many years of her life, she suffered um, very bad clinical depression. Uh, sorry, this, this story makes me cry. Um, she, she became a mother at a very, very young age. She was 16 when she had my, my oldest sister. And by the time she was, I don't even know how old she was, maybe 26, she had five kids. Wow, so much responsibility. Yeah. So many demands on a young woman. Yeah. Especially one that was hurting. Yes. And um, I think she had reached a really, really bad critical point. Um, and the story I've been told is that she walked from where we were living at the time she just walked all the way to the orphanage. And I, I don't know how many miles for sure, but I know it was a great deal of mileage. And um, she rang the doorbell, someone opened the door, and she just said, help me, and just fell. And so, you know, I guess people found out who she was about us, her kids, and I guess they offered to take us in at the orphanage. Mm-hmm. And you stayed there on on the weekends. Yeah, um, most kids most kids went home on the weekends. We did not always go home on the weekends. It was just really hard for my mom, and um, she must have missed you terribly too, right? Yeah, oh yeah, my mom. The the one thing that I've always known and even felt, even though I wasn't with her, is that I know my mommy loved me. That's like, I always knew that. Right. Can, can you tell me about some of the staff or the, the sisters? Yeah. Well, like I said, Sister Elodia was the sister that was over the little girl's department. And my youngest sister came down to the little girl's department because it's, it's like an age range of where you are. Um, so she came down pretty quickly after we'd been there for a little bit, and she loved us very much. And to me, she was like really, really tall woman. You know, she wore the habit and everything. And her her sister was the one who looked over the big girls department, Sister Nunello. And they, it's funny, they spoke Latin to each other when they didn't want to... Really? <laughs> ...want us to hear what we're saying. They spoke Latin to each oh, cool. other. <laughs> And uh, I, I just remember, I guess, me being so small. She looked like she's about, like, eight feet tall. Mm-hmm. But, you know, she you know, she was a real strong woman. Um, and But she really took a special interest in caring for me and my sister. And um, I, I want to say she sometimes gave us special treatment, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think she just felt, felt for us so much. And um, Did you sleep? Did you, you, did you sleep alone? In a bed? Like, how did it work? Because 
You must have been so lonely at the beginning, especially. Yeah, so how the sleeping arrangements were, it was a big dormitory. So there were like rows of beds and each girl had their own bed. I remember it was, you had a bed, you had a chair <laughs> next to your bed. And Sister Lodia slept right off of where we all were sleeping. So she was close. If she heard a ruckus or if somebody needed help, she would... Yeah. I mean, people would knock on her door and we get scared or something. Like, Sister Lodia, and, you know, and... Have you ever been in touch with her since then? She... It's, it's interesting. Right before I moved out to California, I don't know, something just told me to, like, just go see her. And she was, she was at... I forget what they exactly called it, but I called it like the nun's home. When they get elderly, they go to this place and they're cared for. And I found out where she was. And I was like, I have to go see her before I leave for California. And she had an oxygen tank at the time. She was like in a wheelchair and they had her sitting at this table. And I remember I was, I was like feet away from her. And she just saw me coming to her and she just said, my leg. That's what she should always say, <laughs> my lips. And um, it just made me cry because, like, she had, she knew exactly who I was after all these years. And, and, she, and she probably raised hundreds of children. Right? Hundreds of children, yeah. Yeah. Because, um, like, before we went there, it used to be, like, an actual orphanage, orphanage where kids had been put up for adoption and you know, they used to wear uniforms. By the time I got there, we got to wear regular clothes. <laughs> but um, mm. we wore uniforms to school. So then what well, what happened to your family then, the, the the five of you? And how did that play out? Because I know you went a little bit back and forth to your moms and to also yeah. to your foster homes, right? Mm-hmm. So during the time that we were there, I was there from like about age six to about age 11 is how long I was in the orphanage. And there was uh, about a year of that time where I went to live with a family friend of my mom's. I still don't know the reason why it was me, why I was chosen to go, but I remember I had met her, you know, when I was little. I don't know if it was orphanage had something to do with trying to find me a place to go. I don't don't know, but um, I was about eight years old. And I went to live with her. And while I was there, like my sister, my oldest sister had already aged out. So after eighth grade, you're, you're not able to stay at the home anymore. You have, to, um, you have to leave because they only allow you to stay up until what our school that we went to went through was to eighth grade. Um, so she, she had like aged out. And so she had actually gone back home to live with my mom. Um, which was a really hard time for her because I think she ended up being my mom's caretaker. Um, that's a lot for a little kid. You know, she was even like our caretaker a lot growing up too. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, my I'm from, as I said, I'm from a big family and my sister tells a story about how one of her girlfriends um, asked her, so what kind of dolls did you play with when you were little? And she said, dolls? <laughs> we didn't have dolls, we had babies. <laughs> We had little brothers and sisters and whose diapers we changed and fed. So I'm sure that was probably true for your sister and also true for you, right? Because you looked after your little sister, yeah, right? Yeah, we were very close in age, though. We were only like 17 months apart. So while I was there, my, my oldest sister, like I said, had already left. And my little brother, who was still was in the nursery at the time, his dad came to get him. And then my younger sister was the only one there left. And so my mom had had, um, had married 
someone at the time and they decided that they didn't want her there by herself. And so they went and got her to take her to live with my mom and her new husband and my oldest sister. And did that work out? Yeah. And then while I was there, it was found out that my brother wasn't being taken care of. He was um, just got like really sick, or, you know, and so my mom ended up um, having him come back and live with her. And then she called me while I was living with this woman in Ohio, my mom and my mom's childhood friends. And my mom, I remember my mom calling me and saying that she wanted me to come home. And, um, you know, of course, you always want your mom. Yeah. So I wanted, yeah. I wanted my mom. I missed my sisters and my brother. And um, so I, I said, okay, I'll come home. Um, we were living there and then I... I remember this to be like Christmas morning and, and I remember it was like really weird because I remember we had made a Christmas list. I mean, we had gone through like the Sears catalog and like we had written all these things down on our list. And I remember we had gotten so many of the toys that we wanted this year and it was like so awesome. And, you know, I remember it be Christmas morning and we were sitting on mine and my sister's room. We were sitting on the bed, me, her, and my little brother. And I remember we were playing with toys and... um. My mom, um, she showed up in the doorway and she had like this big knife in her hand. And um, she said, look what you've done to me. Look what you've done to me. And, you know, she was crying and and we were like, you know, what did we do? What did we do? You know, we we didn't know what we were we had done. And, and, um, and, I, and I just remember her face and she was just, I could tell she was just so unhappy and just crying. And and then my sister kind of showed up behind her and my sister was like telling us, just, just come on, just run, you know? And, and I remember, you know, we were kind of scared, but my sister was telling us to just come run out the door and pass my mom and and my, my younger sister went on one side, my younger brother went on one side, and I was trying to go in. My, my mom caught me, and she was, you know, just screaming, you know, look what you've done to me, look what you've done. And she was, like, going to st- stab me, and she was you know, trying to stab me with the knife, and I was just pulling away, and, like, I'm so sorry. What did I do? What did I do? And and uh, so the door to my bedroom and the door to um, my mom and her husband's bedroom was like right next to each other. So I was able to like, kind of like as she was holding me and grabbing me, pull also, go from one door to the other. And I, I remember I was asking him to like, get her off of me, get her off of me. And um, um, I remember he looked up, he was playing his guitar on the bed. And I remember he looked up and he just kind of like, <laughs> like laughed and smirked. But eventually he got up and pulled her off of me. And, and You mean um, because he didn't think it was... Serious, or because he was just like fed up with the drama, or I, I guess I, at the time, I didn't even care that that was happening to me. I just cared that you know my mom was so sad, you know, like something was wrong, so wrong with my mom, and yeah, you could see she was in real pain, right? Yeah, and uh, um, I remember it was really, really cold, and uh, my sister put the three of us you know, me and my little sister, my little brother on the front porch um, right outside our apartment door. And um, and then eventually she came and told us to come in. And, you know, we were kind of scared to come in at first. And she just said, you know, it's okay, it's okay. Mommy's okay. And she wants to talk to you. And, and I remember she was laying in my sister's bed in her room. 
And um, and we went in there and, you know, kept saying, Mom, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry what I do. You know, I'm so, we're so sorry. And, uh, and that's when we were told that we were being put up for adoption, me and my younger sister, and that uh, we'd have to go back to the orphanage. We have to go back to the home. We just kept wondering what it is that we did, you know? Yeah, when you're a little kid, you think it's your fault. Yes. Right? You don't know that it, it's not your fault, but when you're a little kid, that's what you think. Yeah, and eventually it was explained to me that, you know, she had a nervous breakdown. She wasn't coherent. She didn't know what she was doing. And it, it's really funny because I was always very serious as a kid, and I could always decipher what adults were saying without them saying it. And for a while, a long time, I, I really thought I had done something for this to happen, and I couldn't figure out what it was I did. And, and I think that at the time, I was like, I'm just going to be so good. You know, any rules I had to follow, any, anything I had to do, I'm just going to be so good. Yeah, you mentioned that you became super adaptable, right? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. That you were always the good kid and the one that was going to get along and not make a fuss. Absolutely. But that takes a toll, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but once it was explained to me about my mom's nervous breakdown, she didn't know what she was doing. She loves us, and she didn't mean to that. I was okay about it. It was still painful to think about what happened. But once I heard that, I was like, okay, I understand. They explained to me that being depressed is a sickness. So once I heard that, I could deal better. So you went back to the home. Went back to the orphanage. It was empty, Christmas time. We were in the dining hall. Think of this huge, long room with these long rows of tables. So the um, director of the home, she walks through and she's like, hey, girls. And then she was going to go to the kitchen and then she just stops and she turns around and she screams so loud, like, what are you doing here? And, you know, and we're just like crying, we don't know, we're so, I don't know, we don't know why we're here. And, you know, we're just crying. And the secretary took us home with her and gave us a Christmas that year. And, and I'll never forget it. Her teenage daughters let us put on their clothes and play in makeup. And they had presents for us. And I just thought, how wonderful. These great people that are willing to do this for us. I was very grateful that we felt like we had somebody's home to go to that year. You mean even as a child, you you were thinking that consciously, mm-hmm. that you had some place to go? Yeah. I remember like being so thankful. And being raised by nuns, <laughs> being thankful is a big part of uh, how you're supposed to live your life, you know. Yeah, but, it, but it's also really nice for me to hear, and probably for others to hear, these nice stories about nuns, because... Nuns can get a bad rap. Yeah. You just really look at any movie, or if you listen to my <laughs> sisters, they were terrified of the nuns in their school. They got wrapped on the knuckles or on the backside. And yeah, they... and some people did, but like I said, I was really, really good. Right, and so do you think that was in part just the way you were born, and, or was that your great desire to fit in? I, I think a little both, actually. I did have that personality of always really trying to be good and do good in school. And like, I've always kind of had that personality because I've always been like really sensitive to people. And I I never wanted anybody to be sad. the, The most horrible thing that I felt like I could do was do something bad that they would yell at me. Yelling at me 
That was probably worse than if I got a spanking. Really, really, that was crushing if you got yelled at. If I got yelled at and if I felt like I upset someone enough to make them have to want to yell at me. I remember I was real sensitive like that. So can you tell me about, um, there was a gentleman named Mr. R at the home, right? Yeah, and we were told we were putting up for adoption, and when we went back to the home, we were told we were going to go to have to now go into foster care. Yeah, did you understand what that was? Or was that explained to I you? I had no idea. What, I had no idea what foster care was. I had never heard of that before. And they said that we're going to have to start going to live with other families. And because we want to try to get adopted, we're going to now have to start going to be with Black families. Because up until then, we really had no exposure to Black people other than my immediate family. And so they said that it would be like our friendly visitors. And what friendly visitors is what they called in the orphanages, like for kids like us who were like stuck at, you know, at the orphanage on the weekends. And if they knew that we would be there for the weekend, sometimes they had these, these trusted homes where a family would just take us for the weekend to give us a place to go for the weekend. Yeah, they have that here now. I have a friend in Los Angeles that does that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, she does it through her church. Oh, yeah. wow. And okay. It's basically to give, like, respite to families. She'll take kids for the weekend or week or whatever. Mm. Gives the, it's usually the grandmom or something. It gives the grandmom a break. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there were these, these trusted friends. Yeah, and they called them friendly visitors. And so that's how they explained foster care to us. Like, when we go to friendly visitors on the weekends, only we would stay there hmm. until we get adopted. And how did that work out? So the first time we went, to a family, and it was the mom and her husband, her daughter, around our age, and they had another foster child there who was mentally challenged a little bit, and her son, she had an older son who was much older than us, and I remember we went to this house. I remember getting out of the car, and I was like, what is this place? It was this rundown, dilapidated house, And this was just a weekend visit to see how we liked it, I guess. I looked at our social worker and she said, it's okay. Their other house was burned down, but it's getting totally rebuilt. So this is just, you know, for you guys to come here for the weekend. And it it was horrible. I remember we had to take a bath in her daughter and, and her other foster daughter's dirty bath water. And it was lukewarm. And I remember we couldn't flush the toilet because the plumbing was horrible. Like, I don't remember what we ate, but I just remember I didn't like it. I couldn't <laughs> wait to go back to the home. And oh then my. her older son, he, you know, I guess, I don't know, just doing what older teenage big brothers do, I guess. And he was like, really mean to us and he locked us out of the house and we were stuck outside and I remember I was crying and he probably didn't want you there too that's maybe why maybe I think there I think there may have been a little jealousy there but I remember we went back to the orphanage and we were telling the um, social worker about everything that we experienced and we were like we're not going back there like she made sure we didn't have to go back but when she moved into her rebuilt home. It was nice. But when she moved... But it was the same family. It was the same family. So we had to go back there. And there's just so many bad things that were happening there. And I feel bad talking about her now because she's deceased. But I didn't like it. I For Christmas, her daughter would get all these great things and we get this little bit of stuff. And she'd always get these new clothes. And we barely got any new clothes. I remember I wore the same pair of pants, like, but two different days during the week. And I, and I remember my, my one friend, she was like, didn't you have those on the other day? <laughs> and I just, I was felt so horrified and, and, you know, but 
it just was it was not a, a, a good place at all. And her older son didn't get any better from that first weekend. And the other foster daughter, I think, is going on with her. Um, the good thing is we had, like, friends, you know, down the street that we would go play with. But um, finally, we, we were our social worker told us that she wasn't going to be our social worker anymore. And we just felt that, oh, no, somebody else is leaving us. Yeah situation and so and then it's like she's gonna leave we're gonna be stuck here forever <laughs> you know I think we just had that desperation and so we just told her everything that was happening everything that went on and she was shocked to hear it and I think eventually this woman wasn't a foster parent anymore and we got a new social worker and this time was a black social worker she asked us if we remembered the man who was the groundskeeper at the orphanage and I remember one year we actually went on a camping trip with their family I guess they owned some land in Glasgow, Kentucky, and they set up all these tents. And I remember we had a lot of fun and all the kids, we, I think we sang Elvira for like that whole weekend, like a thousand times. <laughs> um, but me, I was like, I was always been like really cleany and germy food. So it was like not taking a bath and having to use an outhouse was like disgusting to me. Like, cause I remember one time I was like, I'm just walking across all the way to the cornfield, to the house, to your uncle's house. And I'm using the bathroom. <laughs> And um, so they asked us to remember the groundskeeper. I guess he had been asking about us, and he and his wife were interested in possibly adopting us. So from the first foster home we went to, we went to live with him and his wife, and it was much better. We had our own rooms. <laughs> I had a bathroom in my room. I was, like, so excited. <laughs> and, you know, nice basement, nice big backyard. I mean, different. It was very, very diverse neighborhood. We were back in Catholic school, not public school. <laughs> and um, his wife, she was really, really good to us. And I remember that one of the first things she did is took us shopping to go buy clothes. I'll never forget that. I remember because I was so happy to get clothes. Oh, nice. And um, we had good Christmas and everything. And then one day we were told that we were having to leave. And I think it's because they were getting a divorce and they didn't want us to have to go through the divorce, I think, with them. And partly, too, I don't think she felt like she could take care of two kids on her own. So we were having to leave there. We were really, really sad about it because, I mean, we really liked her and, and we really liked living there. And Yeah, I just want to say, I just want to say one thing about this. Um, this is really important for people to know that a person that doesn't know anything about what happens to kids who have spent time in foster care, they think they just go into foster care and then everything's okay after that. And maybe they just go into one home and then they get adopted. But the reality is that it almost never happens that way. They go from home to home to home, or in your case, to the home, to a home, to back to the home, to your back to your mom to the home, to another home. It's just this hard and painful journey for a little kid. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, and I think that's part of made me like such a serious kid. I was so serious when I was young. And I, I think that I felt like I had to protect my sister and take care of her, just to make sure she was okay all the time. Part of it too is I felt like I, I had to understand what was happening and the best way was just try to figure out what these adults were saying. And sometimes I felt like it was like, oh, okay, well, we, we found you a home, you're in foster care now. But it's just, you know, unless you have a really, really good home that you're put into, you don't feel like supported. And if I didn't have my sister, I, I don't know how I would have made it. 
Right, and then later on, you actually ended up with that woman, right? Yeah. So, yeah, we left her home, and then we were separated into separate foster homes. Oh, gosh. Which was probably, to this day, that was one of the hardest days of my life, having to drop her off and then drive away and go to another home to live. It was just, it was horrible. I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget that drive, driving that car after leaving her at that house. Yeah, man, that fucking sucks. Yeah, it was hard. And, uh, and I hated, I hated, I hated whoever made that decision. But luckily I was able to still see her. Um, it was kind of a long walk to each other's homes, but... Right, but you found a way to do that? To, to... I did get to see her. And at first we were at separate schools and they promised me we'd be at the same school. And at first we weren't. And I cried every day. So you said I would be at her same school. And so eventually we got to be at the same school. So we would meet each other walking to school. Um, you know, and we, we would go, we were in counseling and we had a really great counselor. She was, she was amazing. I loved her. And she always said she would want to adopt us, but she just couldn't afford to adopt us. But It seems like you guys made a really such a positive and warm impact on everybody that you met. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know, it's funny. I, I heard that a lot as I got older from people would say that to us because mm-hmm. we were always a pair. It's like when people would say our names, they would always say them together. Like it was never, <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like... Right, like you were a duo, huh? Yeah, and one day we were in counseling, and she asked us, you know, what would you do if you ever saw your mom again? And right away I knew. I was like, so how'd she find us? And she, she said, you know what, Dorana, I swear I could never get, I could never. You knew, huh? Yeah, she said, she said you always know what I'm saying. She thought, I, she thought I'm just going to just start telling you just from now. I'm just saying it outright to you. Because I did. As soon as she said that, I, I knew. I knew. But it was an interesting story. Later on, I found out from my mom that she had been looking for us for years and that she was being told that they're already adopted, stop searching for them, leave. So you know. she was lied to. She was lied she was to. Lied to. Mm-hmm. And as an adult, she also told me that she was tricked into signing over her rights for us. I, I just can only imagine how painful it was for her because I know how painful it was for me. I remember any time we would go someplace, I was always looking to see if I'd see my mom or my sister or my brother. I was looking for them every single time we'd ever go anywhere, just just hoping one day I'd run into them. So what happened was we were considered hard to place adoptions because we were older. And they did this thing, Wednesday's Child, you know, the news segment that shows kids trying to be adopted and then they wanted to interview us for this newspaper and we were like not the Louisville newspaper you know (laughs) we don't want everybody to see us in the Louisville newspaper (laughs) so they said okay well we have this Indiana paper I think it's called The Voice so we interviewed there and they put a picture of us in there and um and my mom was she was remarried at the time she said that they used to get that newspaper but they stopped the subscription and one day she went out to her front door and the paper with us in it was left on her doorstep. So someone left it there because they knew? I think someone left it there. Uh-huh. I have no idea who. Mm. I don't know who would have known. I, I still try to figure that out and I just, I just don't know who would have known. So then you ended up back with your mom? So we ended up going back. She actually ended up having to adopt my sister back wow. to become her mother again. I see. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to be adopted back. Her husband at the time, I just, I just didn't like him. And 
the very first time we went to visit, you know, he got extremely upset because he said we didn't come to the backyard to say hi to him and we didn't even know he was there. I was thinking about why did that affect me so much? And I equated that to the very first foster care experience I had with the older kid when he locked us out and he was being real mean to us that weekend. And I think I just equated that first time experience together. And well, I just... Yeah, but also because it sounds unfair. He was angry with you for no fault of your own. You, yeah, you weren't, you, exactly. You weren't purposely ignoring him. You didn't even know that he was in the backyard waiting for no, you. No, we didn't. And, but, and yet he held it against you. Yeah. Right away after that first visit, course they're talking about you know placing us back in the home with my mom and I I was just hesitant and it was because of him you know of course I wanted to be with my mom I I couldn't believe I saw my mom again but I it was just him and I knew I just knew in my gut it wasn't going to be a good experience how old were you then oh gosh I was probably about 13 I think almost 14 maybe so right away we had to move in with them. And it was a nice house, right? There was a yard. Oh, yeah, it was really nice. He was a psychologist, and so, I mean, really... He was a psychologist, huh? Yeah, he was a psychologist. Um, And he was angry with you for whatever. Okay, anyway. Yeah, (laughs) there's there's a lot of undealt issues that he had from his childhood. (laughs) Of course. um, (laughs) And, um, yeah, great house. Nice in-ground pool in the backyard, nice big home. It, I mean, it was it was beautiful. It was nice. You know, again, I think we were like one of the few blacks in the neighborhood. He was white. It's funny. All of our dads are black, but all my mom's husbands were white. <laughs> so, it's weird. <laughs> That's great. Um, and how about your mom? How, how was your mom then? Um, you know, my mom still had a bit of a depression. Um, she was still really happy, but she's still always seemed to have this sadness to her. And he was just a nightmare to live with. It was horrible. I really very rarely say I hate someone, but I hated him. I hated living there. I was on eggshells all the time. It was horrible. And so I think that's why I like started this babysitting business in a, a subdivision across the main road <laughs> that we had. We lived near. Right. So you became the baby whisperer, right? At, at- Oh, yeah. I got hired to watch this couple's kids every day after school. So I would come and be with them, give them their snack, make sure they do their homework. And then eventually everyone in that subdivision was asking me to babysit on the weekends and (laughs) even fighting over me and lying to each other. (laughs) And I I didn't realize. um, But I've always been really, really, really good with kids and just love kids. And I was thinking about that, just this need for kids to be okay and kids to be happy. And I and I think it was from being in foster care, from going through what I went through. And, and there was this event that I went to when we were still in the foster care system. And I was about nine years old. And I remember this little boy was acting up at the event. And I happened to be standing near this couple. And they were talking about the little boy. And I didn't hear what the man said, but I heard the woman. And she says, oh, well, he, you know, he's just a foster kid. But the way she said it and the look on her face and just the judgment in her voice you know and this is me like not even really still understanding what foster care was I just said to myself no one will ever say that about me that way Mm. ever and then I looked at I remember looking at the little boy and as an adult I can see he just needed attention and needed some care but as a kid I looked at him and I was like you know what when I grow up I'm going to make sure that foster kids know that they are just as important as anybody else. 
And I just remember thinking that to myself and feeling that in that moment. I remember, I was like, I'm just going to make sure that nobody thinks that they're better than foster kids and the foster kids are just as important as anybody else. I remember that specifically. And it was because of what that woman said. And um, so, so we, um, even though we had gone back to our mom's house, we ended up actually leaving again, me and my younger sister. And we... You left again. I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. So we ended up moving with the groundskeeper and his wife that were going to adopt us, getting divorced. We ended, mm -hmm. She was single now, but she ended up taking us in. And so we ended up living with her. And what was her name? Uh, for this, I'll call her Miss C. Miss C. Okay. So she wanted you. Yeah. Everybody wanted you, really. <laughs> <laughs> She's amazing. And to this day, we call her on the holidays, call her Mother's Day. We... When we go back to Kentucky, we go, we visit her, we stay at her house. So mm -hmm. she's still very much a part of our lives. And, right. And what was she like? She was amazing. Total mother figure and, you know, loved to cook for us and wanted to give us the world and did all that she could to do that. She was always that support, that rock for us. Mm -hmm. And did you, did you all ever end up back with your mom then? We did. Eventually, one by one, we ended up moving out here to California. I've been here since early 90s, and we, we all ended up being together as a family with my mom. And she did get married out here again, and this time to a really great man who loved her and adored her. Oh, nice. Loved, loved her and adored her unconditionally. My sisters actually still live with him. Oh, how nice. <laughs> and uh, so, but we were, she passed away and... 2018, but we were all able to be there by her bedside. Luckily, it's turned out to be a good story. I mean, I miss my mom dearly. I mean, there's nothing that I wouldn't give to have her back, but I'm just so glad that I was able to spend these years with her. And you're on the board of Peace for Kids now. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. It's yeah. just so important. It's such important work. And and being on the board, and I was telling my sisters how excited I was when I was asked if I would be interested in being on the board. And, you know, my sister said to me, Drana, that's so great. You found your thing. And I thought about it. I'm like, yes, this is that thing that I decided was my mission at nine years old. This organization is that thing to do that. And I was just so, so appreciative in that moment, realizing wow. that. Um, wow, that's wonderful. Yeah. Some people never find their thing. Yeah, I know. But I think that's why I've always just, in kids in general, is just, I've always had, just want to make sure kids are happy. And, you know, that kids know that they're important and that they're loved and that they matter. That's just always been a thing with me. And I think kids feel that for me. I'm always at auntie where kids, I'm going to auntie Jay's house and, and you know, and we do activities, we cook, we bake, we, you know. We might already have, have covered this because you've been so forthcoming and I thank you for that. It's really important for people to know the real stories of kids who have spent time in care. But what is the one thing or things that is true about you that people wouldn't know unless you told I, them? I really think they wouldn't know that I was in care and that I was at one time put up for adoption and that to this day, legally on paper, I have no parents. Wow. And I say that because you know, not, not, not to brag or be boastful, but I say that because 
when I become like with colleagues and coworkers and, you know, I become close enough to where I share a little bit of my story, everyone just seems astound like, are you serious? I would have never guessed that about you. And then that makes me think, okay, so what does that mean that if you're in foster care, you're supposed to like have a certain way about you? But I just take that as part of me living my life to want to be a good person and do good and not allowing my circumstance to dictate a bad life. Um, but I don't think they would know that. Like, you know, I, I was sharing it with a colleague of mine uh, not not long ago, and, and she said, she goes, wow, I had respect for you before, but now I really have such a deeper, higher level of respect for you now that I know that about you. And you're a Buddhist, right? Yes, yes. Um, and how, I, did, how did you come to that? Well, you know, back in Kentucky when we were living with, the psychologist I was telling you about. Before he died, just so you know, we completely turned our relationship around and became extremely close. Turns out he had a brain tumor all those years, and I think that was causing the erratic behavior. Amazing, because you just said a few minutes ago that you don't hate anybody and you hated oh, him. when I lived there, absolutely. Right, but it came around. But after huh? he and my mom got divorced, and I remember I was in college and I needed a place to stay for the summer because they had all moved out to California, I stayed with him and we became so close that summer. And we stayed close throughout the years, even after I moved out here. Even to the point where when he was going to the hospital, probably going to pass away, he, had, he ended up getting cancer as well um, in other areas. The ambulance driver called my phone. Mm. But... In the Buddhist story, when my mom was there in that house, she was still severely depressed and dealing with depression. And my uncle, who had moved out to California, had started practicing Buddhism. And he started telling my mom, I want you to chant these words. I want you to chant nam Yoho renge kyo Just keep saying it over and over again. And he would spend so much money on Longness's phone calls chanting with her over the phone. And eventually, she ended up transforming that depression. Wow. And she ended up having courage, having strength to stand up for herself. And eventually she and uh, my stepdad, they got divorced, but you know, she was chanting and he was like, I wasn't gonna like help her out or anything. And then she just kept practicing this Buddhism. And then eventually like as kids, you know, when your mom does something, you have to do it. You don't have a choice. <laughs> we were having to go, you know, to the meetings and stuff with her. But I remember after she got divorced and she was chanting and because she didn't know how she was going to make it because she had been a housewife all this time. And, and then she said out of the blue one day, he said, I'm going to pay for your car. I'm going to give you monthly allowance. And she just became this different person from practicing. And so fast forward many years later, like all my family started practicing. My mom, my uncle, my oldest sister, my younger sister, they were all doing Buddhism. And they used to always tell me, Jorana, you should, you should chant, you should practice. And I'm like, nope, as long as you're a good person and you live a good life and you do good, good will happen. You will have a good life. Good comes back to you. And so I used to say that. And then the thing that I love about this Buddhism is your ability to change your karma, right? Because, you know, cause and effect. But this, this allows you to change that karma. And so that's the difference of like just living a good life, but you still have your karma to face, right? So fast track, they were practicing probably like about 15 years and I was going through something that I, I didn't know how I was going to overcome this challenge. And I remember I said, you know what? Okay, they said this Buddhism works. I'm going to sit down, I'm going to chant, I'm going to test it. And I'm going to give full belief, full faith 
that me chanting this is going to make it work. And I swear to you the next day. Now, it doesn't always happen that way for everybody, but it was enough to get me to think, okay. And just even seeing the transformation in my family should have been enough. But there's this thing you do, what we call human revolution, when you're practicing Buddhism. And, you, you know, you really change, like, from the depths of your life. And you evolve to reach, mm. you know, what we call your Buddhahood, your awakened self. So 15 years later, I started practicing. So I've been practicing this Buddhism probably for, it's Nichiren Buddhism. So I belong to um, SGI, Soka Gakkai International, and since 2000, February 2000 is when I joined. You know, I've always been very curious about it, and I appreciate hearing this because it makes me want to investigate it more. You know, there's a great book, Tina Turner's book, Mm. Happiness Becomes You. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a great book to read about, and she talks a lot about Buddhism in that book. So, Gerana, you have a son, right? Can you tell me about him? Yeah, I do. Um, He is 23 now. What? No! (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm so behind. (laughs) Yeah, he... Um, you look but, like you're 12. How could you have a 23-year-old son? Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Um, way older than 12, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but thank you. He's 23, and he is the love of my life, and it's been one of the greatest joys, as much as it's been a struggle at times. Right, because you're a single mom? Single mom. Mm-hmm. And um, he is a very strong-willed person who definitely has his own mind, but we're we're very very close, and you know, and I from my past, I just always wanted to make sure that no matter what, that he knew that mom was going to always be there, and that I loved him more than anything, and, and that's carried over to him. Right. So, if you're the baby whisperer, were you able to baby whisper him, or did was he like <laughs> one of those guys like, no, you're not doing that with me? Um, I yes, to a point, and at times <laughs> it depends. It depends. You know, I'm still mom, right? Mm, so yeah. baby whisper to other kids is a lot easier than your own. He's, he's, he's been brought up with the love of family and to have empathy and compassion for people. He's one of those people that will give a homeless person his last dollar and he'll shake their hand and call them ma'am or sir while doing it. That's great. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Yes. And family is really important to him. And to this day, even growing up, whenever we said bye, he's always hugged me, kissed me, love you, mom. And in front of his friends, you know, we don't really. Wow. Yeah. I mean, to this day. So. So if he's listening now, what what would you say? Um, I would just say that he's definitely my greatest treasure in this life and that I hope that I, I've done him proud in raising him and, and the way I've lived my life and that I'm always here. I'm, I'm always here and I'm always going to have his back and be in his corner. We are recording this on Martin Luther King Day and I want people to know what your t-shirt says. I can only read part of it. Oh, it says, let me see, Malcolm, Harriet, Langston, Maya, and Frederick. That's right. So some very important heroes, right? Yes, exactly. And um, I think you are too. I think the journey you've taken from a very difficult childhood to be the woman and the very warm, kind and generous person that you are now, I know has not been an easy one for you. I know this has not been easy for you to tell this story. And I really appreciate that you are willing to share it with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm just really glad that Gerana has found her thing. She's on a mission to make sure the kids who are forced into foster care 
by no fault of their own, that they're going to be treated as well as other kids because they should be. They deserve to be. They are the children of our future, and we need to protect them, nurture them, nourish them. So thank you for your work, Jarana. If you see something, say something. If you suspect that a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. I want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful music, Eferisto. To hear more of her music, go to Spotify and Instagram at Christina Apostol. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-N-A-A-P-O-S-T-O. I know you want to. Her stuff is really great. And thanks to my audio producer extraordinaire, Marcos Campito. I'm glad I found you. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear, please rate us and hit subscribe. <laughs>